Well, today we uh, get to kind of jump into the, officially, I guess, into the Christmas season, and that's an exciting time of year. Of course, uh, as we've already said, things look a little bit different this year, but, um, you know, we're, we're going to get into talking about just all the, the, the amazing things that this means. Uh, before we do that, just a little curiosity here. Over the weekend, how many of you did some Christmas shopping? And if you're watching at home, you can kind of chime in, you know, on, on the platform with that. But if you're here, let's say it, some of you do some Christmas shopping. Maybe not quite as much uh, as what I'm gathering as, as some others have in times gone past. Uh, I remember Black Friday in, in years past when, you know, everybody would wake up really early and go to the store. And actually, you know, that was a family thing that we did. Once or twice, it was all of our family, and then it became a mother-daughter thing, which was the best decision I've ever made, because I decided that that was nuts, getting up that early and going to stand in line in stores. Not as much of a thing this year, I noticed. Um, uh, of course, a lot of things have shifted online now, and so there are a lot of opportunities even for those doing that. Another thing, did you notice this? Black Friday this year? It wasn't Black Friday, it's pretty much the entire month of November for the most part. You know, everybody starts, first time I ever, ever could remember people beginning to, you know, post Black Friday specials in early November, and I'm sure a lot of that is an attempt to kind of jumpstart things and, and uh, stimulate, you know, the um, retailers and others that have been struggling recently. But, you know, this is, this is part of the Christmas season, and this whole idea surrounding gifts and you know, what do you do with that? What does that look like in your family? Um, and, and, and by the way, uh, we're going to talk this morning about, uh, or kind of get into a, a series today uh, about the gift of Christmas. And of course, we're going to talk about some more meaningful and lasting gifts that we have been given. And, uh, but before we do that, let me just kind of share with you, because I, I know a lot of, of believers, a lot of Christ followers kind of wrestle with this issue. How do we approach this whole idea of gift giving at this time of year. Because, you know, as a, as a follower of Christ, we know that, that Christmas is about more than material things. We know that there is a greater purpose. We are celebrating the birth of the Savior. And so for some, there's a little bit of tension there. It's like, how do I handle this? How do I manage this? You know, it's part of our culture and it's just kind of, you know, what, what most of us are used to it, especially if you have young kids, uh, then, then how do you handle that? And I don't know if there's necessarily a right or a wrong answer, but just in thinking through that, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll share with you my opinion on this. This is not, you know, this is not scripture, which we will get into soon, where it's black and white and absolute. This is just, you know, my best understanding of how to apply scripture to a, um, a difficult question. But when it comes to those kinds of things, here's personally how we have processed that. Number one, we obviously want to um, you know, try to keep the main thing the main thing at Christmas time and remember what it's all about. Um, I, I think you can do that and still participate in the gift giving process and you know, all the other stuff that goes along with, with Christmas. Uh, one of the things that I would encourage you, if that's the, the, the route that you go, um, is just to find ways to try to point the, the focus and attention back to Christ. You know, especially when our kids were little, it was things like, you know, making a birthday cake for Jesus on Christmas morning or reading the Christmas story before opening gifts or whatever it, it may be. And certainly uh, going about it and, and uh, one of the best pieces of advice I can give you, by the way, this time of year, if you, especially if you're into the gift side of Christmas, is don't overspend. 
you know, don't go into debt uh, in order to get some cool stuff that you've always wanted. And that's always been something that was kind of important to us is, you know, we can, we can have fun with it. We're going to open a bunch of gifts and do all that, but uh, be more reasonable with it and that kind of thing. But whatever, whatever you come up with, um, more than anything, what I want to encourage this Christmas season is for us to uh, just kind of take a look at, you know, what are the gifts that are really the most significant things? And however you approach the material side of, of, of the gift giving, let's talk about the, the more meaningful gifts that come along this time of year. And th- this, is, this is my heart this Christmas season, is that we find a way to make this Christmas extra meaningful based on what this year has been like. You know, uh, it's, it's been a difficult year, I think, for pretty much everybody. So how can we redeem that as much as possible and bring as much real meaning to the Christmas season as we possibly can. And so today, we're going to uh, jump into the first of a few weeks' worth of looking at the gifts of Christmas. Here's a little spoiler alert on the front end, and that is that every week we're going to talk about a gift that we've been given, and then we're also going to say, okay, now that we've been given that gift, it's, it's our privilege and our responsibility to turn around and give that gift to others as well. Because when you receive a really meaningful gift, you really do want to share that with people around you. And so uh, that's the route we're going to go. We're going to talk about here some gifts that Christ has come to give to us. And then this is what we are going to do to take those gifts and to turn around and say, okay, how can I use this to bless others in our community and others around us? And today we are going to, in just a moment, jump into Matthew chapter 20. So if you want to open your Bible there with me, Matthew 20. Um, before we get that, before we get there, let me give you a little context from Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, verse 28, this verse will be important for us to understand what we're about to read in chapter 20. It says that Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, so Jesus is is telling them this is what is to come. Now, with that in mind, let's keep that context in mind as we read chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you you get this context here. Jesus has said, chapter 19, that each of you will sit on a throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And now in chapter 20, we have uh, James and John, their mother actually comes on their behalf and makes a request and says, more or less, okay, since all of them are going to have a throne to judge with you, can my two sons be right beside you, one on your right, one on your left. 
Now, this is an interesting request here that, that is more than just, this is more than just the, uh, like the grandkids at Christmas time that fight over who gets to sit by grandmama. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I want to sit here. I want to be closest to you. There's more going on here than just that. For this request to be made to sit one at your right and one at your left is a request for authority. It's a request for position. And the others understood that. We see that very clearly because of their response to it. And we see based on Jesus' response that there's more to it than that because his response immediately is, these have been reserved for those, you know, my, my father decides that more or less. They, they, they will be given to those that they have been reserved for. And then when the rest of the disciples hear about the request that has been made, they're indignant is the word. They are really upset about it. So obviously this is more than just, hey, can I get close to you? This is a request for authority. It's a request for power. And uh, by the way, it's interesting in Mark's gospel, uh, it records that James and John made the request. And in Matthew's gospel, it says that their mother made the request. This is, it says Zebedee's sons. You remember James and John were, were the sons of Zebedee. They're also referred to elsewhere in the New Testament as the sons of thunder. Uh, these are the two that when Jesus was passing through Samaria and they were not welcomed in Samaria, they got really upset about it and they said, should we call down lightning from heaven to destroy them? Um, and so they, they seemed to be those that, that had this more explosive you know, side to their personality that could, that could come out, which is interesting to me, by the way, because this same John, if you read the uh, letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, later on in, and even the Gospel of John, later in the New Testament, written by the same guy, one of the emphases you see over and over again is love, loving one another. And so obviously his, his heart was transformed from being somebody that wanted to call down lightning from heaven to destroy people to really focusing on loving people. And that's what God does. God changes hearts and transforms us. But, but these two at this point are still, you know, as we all are, but still very much a work in progress. And so they're, they're seeking authority. They're seeking power. And, and by the way, the best way that we can understand why in Mark's gospel, it just says James and John made the request. In Matthew's gospel, it says the mother did, but then he immediately, it, it very clearly says the sons were there with them. And then uh, it very clearly, Jesus begins to, to answer them. She makes the request in verse 22. It says, you don't know what you are asking. If this were written in Texan, it would say, y'all don't know what y'all are asking because this is plural here. So Jesus obviously is not speaking just to the mother at this point. He's speaking to all of them. And then James and John respond to it. So uh, it very, very, it's not inconsistent at all to say that James and John made the request because they were requesting. We don't know why if they put their mom up to it, but it evidently is not one of those cases where mom runs ahead and tries to do something for her kids and the kids have no idea and are maybe embarrassed about it. That happens sometimes, right? They find out later like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my mom did that or said that. No, they were in on this. They, they were together and they go together and they make this request. Maybe there was some unique relationship that their mother had with Jesus. Uh, maybe they thought she has a better uh, likelihood of getting a, an affirmative answer than we do. So let's have her ask. We don't know exactly why. Uh, maybe she was just one of those moms, you know, that's like, I'm going to get my boys what I want to get my boys. We don't know why, uh, but, but evidently she made the request, but it really was their 
request as well. So either of those is accurate to say that she requested or that they requested because it was both of them. And so Jesus uses this opportunity for a teachable moment, which he always does. And I love that uh, about when things come up, you know, verse 25 it says that, well, right before that in verse 24 is when it said that the others, the other 10 were indignant with the two brothers. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 25, he calls them together and he begins to explain to them um, what real leadership, what real authority looks like. And he begins to use this as an opportunity to talk about the importance of service, which we'll jump into uh, that portion of the text here in a minute. But let me just quickly point out, and this is not the main point today or the main idea, uh, but let me just, just point out to you the fact that when there was an issue, Jesus immediately addressed it. He immediately brought them together and said, let's talk about this. You know, sometimes when, when something is uncomfortable in a family, in a work setting, in a group setting, that our tendency is maybe to ignore it or not want to deal with it. I don't, I don't want to talk about this because it's uncomfortable. And Jesus is like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're not going to pretend like this isn't an issue. We're going to just bring it right out into the open and deal with it, which is exactly what we should do in situations like that. Just put it right out there and let's talk about it, okay? Let's not hide it, act like it didn't happen. We're just going to deal with it. And so the, what, what he does is he uses this as an opportunity to talk about service. And, and he even says, and we'll come back to this later, but he ends this little thing by talking about how Jesus himself did not come to be served, but to serve. And I want you to think about this from as, as we enter into the Christmas season and we, you know, think about the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. I want you to think about how Jesus' coming set the tone for what he is talking about here, about living a life of service. Even the circumstances around his entering the world in the first place really do point toward the fact that he is going to be a servant, uh, not somebody who wants to be served. I'm not sure when the last time was that you spent time around farm animals. I don't, you know, spend a lot of time on the farm. I know, you know, that that they can be kind of cute and cuddly and all that, but I'm going to tell you right now, they stink. They're dirty. And that was the setting for the coming of the King of Kings. I mean, we all know the story, right? They, there was no room for them. They didn't have a place, a guest room for them. And so they, they take this baby Jesus on his very first night here on earth and they place him in a feeding trough for animals. Nasty. And that was what he was surrounded with. That was the entrance that he made. And, and that really points toward exactly what he's talking about here, that, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He came to give himself up for us. That's not the way royals usually make an entrance, right? It's, there's some interesting stuff if you get online and just kind of look at, you know, protocols and different things. And that's a big deal. Even, you know, entering whether it's an official event of some sort or some type of public appearance. I mean, there are certain protocols about how royalty enters uh, into the... And this is the, the king of kings coming into the world for the very first time as a human being, you would think that it would be a grand entrance, right? And it's not. It's, I spend my first night in a nasty feeding trough for farm animals. 
But that's, that's the heart of, of, of Jesus. That's His coming not to be served, but to serve. I know that's, that's not normal uh, when it comes to how those in authority and it comes to, to those that are royalty, how they deal with things. But this Christmas season, I want us to remember that, that humble beginnings of Christ and how He came to serve and then let that inspire us to do the same. So let's spend the rest of our time just with what Jesus had to say to His disciples. And I want to point out two things to you from what He had to say. And the first one is this, that in order for us to really grasp this concept of what He's teaching about the importance of service, the first thing is that we have to reject the world's definition of greatness. Reject the world's definition of greatness. It says that Jesus says, You know the rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So he's saying, look, they're, they're flexing their muscles, they're in charge, they want everybody to know they're in charge. Uh, that's the way, in general, the world defines greatness, right? It's those that, that have the power, it's those that have the money, it's those who have the, the, the fame, the recognition, those that everyone else you know, kind of wants to do whatever they say, follow their lead. That's how the world defines greatness. And we see uh, similar examples of that today, where authority can be misused, where it talks about lording it over them or abusing their authority. I mean, that can happen in a home setting, and it uh, unfortunately does happen in a home setting, where parents take their God-given authority but they, they turn it in an abusive way toward their children. And rather than using that authority to love and to guide and to serve their, their children, they, they use it to, to beat them down, maybe physically, emotionally, and other ways they just you know, can use that authority negatively. It can happen in a relationship between, a, uh, between two spouses, between a husband and a wife. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it is the husband that, that is the perpetrator, but not always. But where one uh, begins to you know, just treat the other in a, in a terrible way. And sometimes, sadly, um, we, some that, that would identify as Christians would even take Scripture out of context. Take Scriptures like in Ephesians 5, where it talks about wives submitting to your husbands, and would use that as an excuse to exercise authority in a wrong way and totally ignoring the fact that the very next passage of Scripture says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so it's a total you know, twisting of Scripture, but that happens. It happens in a work setting when you have a boss, and maybe some of you have been there or are there now, that just wants to exercise authority, that just wants to, to be in charge and, and is not in any way... Uh, concerned about the welfare of those that are under his or her authority. It happens in a variety of settings where we see uh, this, this authority being used the wrong way. And what Jesus is teaching is that, that that's not at all what true authority or what true leadership looks like, that servanthood is what it's supposed to look like. In fact, right after he says this, you know, he explains, you know, this is how those in the world, this is how they, they exercise authority. And then the beginning of verse 26. And this is the little key phrase here. Not so with you. Not so with you. 
And what he's saying to them is, look, I understand this may be the way that, that the world deals with authority and, 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 and demonstrates authority, but you are called to be different. In fact, what he's telling them is, you're called to be like me. I don't exercise authority that way. I mean, Jesus, of all people, certainly could have exercised authority that way, but he didn't. And he's telling his disciples that, that that's not the way uh, that, that, that they are to respond. You know, the, the crazy thing is this, that a lot of times when people have been in a position where they have um, been abused in some way, where somebody that, that should have been serving them in some way and, and, and they didn't, a lot of times they end up turning around and doing the same thing. I mean, we've, we've read the statistics, we've heard the stories, you know, of things like children who are abused, and then there's a greater likelihood that they, in turn, will become abusers later on. That doesn't, obviously doesn't mean that that always happens, but it's just a, a higher likelihood than the general population. And, you know, you would look at that and you would think, why in the world would that be the case? I mean, you would think, having been through that and having experienced that, that, that it would be like, I don't want to ever put anybody else through something like that. And for many, that's, that is the case. And that should be the case. And if any of you have been through a situation like that, my heart goes out to you. Um, and I just want to encourage you to let what you've gone through and that, that horrible experience that you've had, to let that drive you toward becoming a servant even more so. Um, because Jesus said that, that we are to then serve those around us. And so don't misuse your authority. That's kind of his, his point here. And you know, it doesn't have to be major things. It doesn't have to be huge issues. I was thinking about this. One of the, the first bosses I had as a young man was somebody that was a good guy. He really was. Um, but he was an insecure leader. And he let it be known that he did not want his authority to be questioned. And, you know, sometimes jokingly, but other ways, it was just a, you don't ask questions, you don't make suggestions, because that is taken as a threat. And I remember as a young man, and not in an unhealthy, again, I want to emphasize, it wasn't an unhealthy type of situation that I was in, but I just remember observing that and thinking to myself, if I'm ever in a position similar to that, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be like that. So, yeah, we can, we can take those examples that are maybe not what we would hope they would be and we can learn from them and say I'm going to go the other direction and Jesus is saying that here in fact really isn't all the Christian life about saying well we are not like everything and everyone else we are called to be different and to be uh, unique and, and stand out in a different way so if that's going to happen then we have to first reject the world's definition of greatness but then the second part of that as Jesus continues on is that we also must embrace God's definition of greatness and Jesus defines it in these terms here not so with you it says instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant whoever wants to be first must be your slave I mean that's that's strong language right there there, there's no getting around what Jesus is saying here. That greatness in God's eyes is defined in terms of service. You know, greatness is one of those topics that, that we hear a lot about in our culture. 
people are always talking about who's the greatest in different things in different areas. Um, there's a term out there nowadays for those that are um, sports followers, the GOAT. There's a lot of question about who's the GOAT. And I just got to tell you, I'm going to show my age a little bit, but when I was growing up, let me tell you who the GOAT was. The GOAT was the one who threw an interception at the end of the game right before the team was about to score and go ahead. That was the GOAT. The GOAT was the one that messed everything up. Now, the GOAT is the one who throws a touchdown pass week after week, year after year, because GOAT stands for what? Greatest of all time. And there are a lot of questions, there are a lot of discussions about who's the GOAT, who's the greatest of all time. Let me tell you this, when they're, when they're having those discussions about who is the GOAT, I promise you they are not talking about who's the greatest servant that they've ever known. That will never enter into the world's discussion of who is the GOAT. Because we don't really think of greatness in those terms. We think of greatness in terms of, you know, if it's sports, who is the most successful, who won the most championships, who has the best statistics over their career, who has longevity, who has all these kinds of things. It's all things that they can be held up and say, this is what makes a person great. In a business setting, even, you know, who was successful, who was able to turn the company around, the CEO that came in and transformed the culture and all these kinds of things. That's how we determine greatness. We don't look at it and say, okay, who is just the greatest servant you've ever known? But in God's eyes, we're told that that's how God defines greatness. That's how Jesus defines greatness is in terms of service. And so as a result of that, Jesus tells us that, that we are to follow that same pattern. And you know, one of the things I love, and I've said this so many times before and will continue to, but I just love the fact that Jesus never calls us to do anything that he didn't do himself. He's never going to hold us to a standard that, that he didn't model for us. And so when he's calling us to a lifetime of service, he's saying, look, that's what I've come for. And Jesus modeled this in so many different ways. I want you to think about in his life how Jesus modeled a life of service. Even from the way that he interacted with people. Think about the, the outcast. You know, he would heal those with leprosy. He would heal people born with, with blindness, people that, that couldn't walk, that were just kind of left out of the, as the dregs of society, and he would seek them out and, and give them the ability to walk. I mean, all these different things that he would do to make a point to reach out. He would extend unconditional love to people like prostitutes and and tax collectors and other, I mean, he really modeled a life of humble service. That's who he was. That's what he did. And ultimately, his service led him to giving himself, as it says here, as a ransom for many. You know, a ransom involves paying a price to set captives free. When the Bible says that Jesus became a ransom for us. It's saying that he paid the price necessary in order to set the captives, us, free. Now, we weren't physically, you know, captured like a prisoner of war or something like that, or a kidnapper might take someone and hold them hostage. But we are held hostage to sin. We are captives to sin. And so Jesus came to give himself as a ransom to pay the price necessary, which the Bible tells us that the price of the wages of sin is death. 
And the only way for that payment to be satisfied is for death to occur. In the Old Testament, it was a sacrificial death. It was a shedding of blood of an innocent animal that would cover the sins of those uh, that were offering the sacrifice. But ultimately, there has to come a point where a final payment has to be paid on our behalf. Apart from Christ, that means that we die and that we are eternally separated from God. Our own death is the payment for our sins because we're getting what we deserve. Jesus came to become a ransom, to pay the price to set the prisoners free, meaning that he died in our place so that we could be forgiven and so that we could have our sins paid for so that we could be set free spiritually. And I want to just kind of stop there for a moment before we just talk about a couple of ways that, that we can find ways to serve and all that. But let's just stop there for a moment and just ask this question. Have you been set free? Have you been set free from, from sin, from the captivity that comes along with that? Because that's why Jesus came. That's his heart is to set captives free. And today I want to encourage all of us to either, number one, have a time where we just thank God for the fact that, yes, he has set us free. Yes, we have come into a relationship with him. We have accepted Christ in our lives, and we've seen what has happened as a result of that. Or, if you've not yet come to that point, a time where you can say, Jesus, I want to be set free. I want to give my heart to you today. And so let's just pray together. And just in your heart, either that expression of, God, thank you for setting me free, or I need you to do that for me, and I'm trusting you with my heart right now. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for what you've done. Lord Jesus, you've given your life for us to set us free. You've come not to be served, but to serve, to give your life as a ransom for us. And so we thank you for that. Lord, for those of us that, that know you, I'm grateful. We're all grateful for what you've done. And Lord, for those that maybe haven't yet entered into a personal relationship with you through faith, I pray that now is that time. That just in the, in the quietness of, of where they sit, Lord, this would be a time to say, Jesus, I give my life to you. And I'm believing in you and trusting in you as my Savior today. Lord, I thank you for how you transform our lives and our hearts when we, when we do trust you like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.